Please rise as you are able for the reading of today's scripture from Revelation chapter 3, verses 7 through 13. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, These are the words of the Holy One, the True One, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. I know your works. Look, I have set before you an open door, which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but are lying, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Because you have kept my word of patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to test the inhabitants of the earth. I am coming soon. Hold fast to what you have, so that no one may seize your crown. If you conquer, I will make you a pillar in the temple of my God. You will never go out of it. I will write on you the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem that comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. Let anyone who has an ear listen to what the Spirit is saying to the churches. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Well, good morning, church. It is so good to be with you this Sunday. I didn't know until this very morning what I had been missing by not seeing Amanda's face when she leads that children's choir. That is all of the joy in one person. It was incredible. And earlier when you saw that picture and Laura shared that Davis, our senior pastor, was leading uh, this trip with 90 pilgrims to the Holy Land, all I could think back there was, I feel like that camel is leading Davis. And he did not see in charge. Um, and, uh, and so we do bring um, his greetings. And I, the last I heard from him, he was in Tiberias and was praying for us gathering here for worship this morning. I wanted to share a couple of my favorite pictures that I've seen so far, um, shared by Doug Rawls on Facebook. Uh, the first is obviously Davis doing Davis and preaching in the Holy Land. I love that to see him there. And then the second picture is the whole group remembering their baptism at the Jordan River how absolutely breathtaking that is, a life-changing experience that they are all having. And we send them our love and we commit to continuing praying for them as they travel. So here we are. We've really settled into this study on Revelation. I would not suggest by any means that we have gotten comfortable It's tough to get comfortable in Revelation. John Wesley actually said, the Revelation was not written without tears, neither without tears will it be understood. That feels good. I will do what I can to keep you from crying today, but we will enter this struggle together. So if you have been here over the last five weeks, then you remember that we are working in apocalyptic literature. Apocalypse meaning that it was an unveiling. So John's revelation was written as he sat in prison on an island called 
Patmos. You can see that. It's hard to see from here, from where you're seated probably, but you see that little red uh, Patmos in the, with the red ink and the white uh, background there. So you can see Patmos, that island. Um, it's 40 miles off the western coast of Asia Minor, and he was incarcerated there for his witness for John's disruptive witness to the risen Christ. The book we know as Revelation was his account of a vision that was revealed to him by an angel of Jesus Christ. He wrote this vision as a single pastoral letter to disciples who were gathered in churches, disciples who were facing enormous pressure in their communities because of their faith in Christ. These were the very Christian disciples that John knew best. These were people for whom he felt love and responsibility, and they were facing turmoil in the empire, wars and rebellions and tyranny and instability and famines and earthquakes. And in the midst of what felt like absolute total chaos in their world was this Christian church in its infancy. It was vulnerable and trying to find its way, but the small movement pressed on. They added converts, mostly from the lower classes. These outsiders met privately in homes and they continued to claim that Jesus is Lord. And so they were seen as suspicious and unpatriotic and enemies of the state for pledging no allegiance to the emperor. They could be arrested and publicly killed with no objections. It was dangerous to be a Christian. And so that is who John wrote his pastoral apocalyptic letter for. That is who Christ's angel brought the message for. Those are the communities of faith who gathered round to hear this read aloud. And those were the ears that it fell upon. But it was specifically seven churches who were addressed, seven churches in seven major cities. You see those highlighted in yellow on that map. This, these cities were positioned in places for this letter to circulate widely throughout the region, region, located on the main Roman road, about 30 to 40 miles apart each, you see in that circle. And that brings us to chapters two and three in the Revelation where we read the personalized little letters within the letter. Davis has taken you to five of these churches, to five of these cities already. You started with the cold church in Ephesus. That city that you can maybe see is closest to John at Patmos. Then you traveled up the road to the rich church at Smyrna then to the stumbling block church at Pergamum, then to the compromising church at Thyatira, and then to the dead church at Sardis. And today we travel the Roman road down to Philadelphia. Philadelphia had been prosperous and known to be a center of Greek culture, known for its athletic contests and festivals and culture, sometimes called a little Athens because it was filled with so many gods and temples but things changed dramatically for Philadelphia in AD 17. A historically devastating earthquake almost totally eliminated the city. The ancient historian Strabo called Philadelphia a city full of earthquakes. This wasn't just one big devastating earthquake. It was 
the tremors. It was the aftershock. It was described by Strabo like this. Shocks were an everyday occurrence. Gaping cracks appeared in the walls of the houses. Now one part of the city was in ruins, now another. Most of the population lived outside the city in huts and feared to go into the city streets lest they should be killed by falling debris. Those who continued to live in the city went mad. They spent their time securing shaking buildings and every now and then fleeing to the open spaces for safety. Imagine the constant angst and uncertainty, the lack of security and comfort. I traveled to Haiti a few years after the 2010 earthquake, a massive earthquake that killed probably 200,000 people and over 1 million were left homeless. It was estimated that 3 million people were directly affected by this earthquake, which represented a third of their entire population. So I was there three and four years later and the evidence of the devastation was everywhere. But there was also devastation that wasn't visible. This devastation was within the people who remained. It was in the survivors. Whether ancient or modern, earthquakes wreak havoc on a person's psyche. Survivors have to grieve. People they know have died suddenly. Survivors will suffer post-traumatic stress, images they can't erase from their minds, reliving it, every aftershock, every tremor, every time they hear an everyday big, loud noise can take them right back. Survivors have to rebuild. They're called upon to rebuild after they've lost the security that they found in shelter and surroundings and possessions and so angst would have been imprinted on the DNA of the Philadelphians. Survivors in Philadelphia had rebuilt, and by this point, there was a really small congregation of Christians, very small. The church was poor, and it was harassed, not just by the pagans, but also by local Jews who opposed the followers of Jesus, which was especially painful because many Jewish Christians were seeking security of worship in the synagogue, But in spite of the abuse and even the harm that was done to them, the church was obedient and it was faithful. The church at Philadelphia endured. You may have noticed in the letter that Leslie read that uh, the letter to the Philadelphian church included not a single word of criticism. It is only affirming and encouraging and comforting and basically just challenges them to keep going. Now, just because they weren't criticized like the other churches we've been to, they doesn't mean that the Philadelphia church was perfect. They probably had plenty of room for improvement, but come on, they needed the win. They had been repeatedly knocked down. They were weak and they were fragile and they were faithful when faced with adversity over and over and over again. They might have been small, but they were reliable. And knowing all of that, knowing all of that about the environment in the region, about the experience of living in Philadelphia, I cannot get over this one part of that text. Verses 10 and 12, the first part of verse 12. Because you kept my command to endure, I will keep you safe through the time of testing that is about to come over the whole world 
to test those who live on earth. As for those who emerge victorious, I will make them pillars in the temple of my God and they will never leave it. Can you even imagine being tired and defeated and anxious and afraid and insecure and having a history of the literal ground beneath you coming loose and searching for anything stable to hold on to, knowing what it means to lose your balance at a moment's notice and watch things fall from the sky and lose everything you own and witness the suffering of loved ones and bearing all that weight, you gather with some other brave disciples and you hear this word from John. The word is an assurance that if you can just keep going, keep enduring, keep loving, keep worshiping, and keep following, then God will make you more secure than you ever imagined. I will make them pillars in the temple of my God. Pillars, strong and sturdy in the temple, the safest, most well-constructed building in the whole city. I will make them pillars in the temple of my God. Now, this isn't the specific temple you're seeing that, that we are talking about here, but we can assume that when they hear this and picture something like this, then I simply cannot imagine what this message might have felt like them to hear. John's letter brought good news to the Philadelphian Christians. It affirmed their work. It affirmed their missionary calling. It acknowledged the difficulty of the powerlessness and isolation. And it it promised that they would be kept by God. And it assured them that Christ would be present with them always. It made threatened, frightened people feel like there was hope in a future that included safety and peace. We don't actually have to work that hard to relate to the Philadelphia church. They were weary and anxious and troubled and tired. They were isolated and they were lonely. They were fearful and they felt unsafe. So my question is, what about you? I wonder if you have a place where you feel weary and you feel anxious and troubled and tired and isolated and lonely and fearful and unsafe. Maybe at school, where your education and social growth can be distracted by bullying or exclusion or feeling like you're not smart enough or anything enough. Maybe at work, where your actual responsibilities are distracted by pressure to climb the ladder or performance records or dissatisfaction or maybe at home where your place of refuge is distracted by busyness or abuse or tension of feeling lonely, feeling unnoticed and unappreciated. Maybe it's in your everyday civic life where your normal everyday has become distracted by this angst about threats of violence or slurs or suspicion or discrimination. Maybe it's in your very own body where you have no choice but to live all the time, but it is distracted by addiction or disease or chronic illness or disgust. We don't know what it is to expect the ground to literally fall out from beneath us. 
but we all know, every one of us knows what it is to figuratively feel like the ground is falling out beneath us. We have known fear and we have known anxiety. We have all known shame and despair. We have all known guilt and humiliation. We've known anger and we've known resentment. We have all known it and we've lost our balance. Some of us felt unbalanced walking in here this morning. Sometimes we're so distracted just trying to stand upright that we forget that Jesus Christ stands with us and bears with us and goes before us and comes up behind us and secures us. We miss that Christ cares and is concerned, but we can be sure that Christ's presence is with us in our trouble. When we lose our footing, when we feel scared and anxious at school or at work or at home, or in our everyday life, or in our bodies, we can remember and proclaim the hope that Jesus is Lord. Today and tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow, Jesus is Lord, standing right with us, making us pillars in the temple. My son James is three, almost three. He's always loved books always, always. And he has known that mommy and daddy do too. And so like many families, we will read uh, tons of books with him right before bed. And recently he has discovered that reading isn't just fun, it's also a stalling technique. So he knows that if he hops up and runs to get a book and carries it to us and tilts his head and says, mommy, this is my favorite book. He knows that we are weak and we are spineless and we will read it to him even though it is most definitely not his favorite book. And he, we actually don't know that he knows what favorite means and that it is very much past his bedtime. And you also maybe know that as parents, we have our favorites and our not favorites. I may be guilty of hiding a book or two that I could not bear to listen to my own voice read again. But among my actual favorites, my actual favorites, is this book, Wherever You Are, My Love Will Find You, by Nancy Tillman. It's written for children to know how loved they are by their parents no matter what, when sometimes it's hard even for parents to say how much they love their kids. And I think I love it not only because of the message that it reads to my son, but also, frankly, because of the message I hear in it for me. So I'm going to read some of the words to you, and I want you to hear it being read to you. No matter how old you are, I want you to hear this as a loving promise from your God. <clears throat> I wanted you more than you ever will know, so I sent love to follow wherever you go. It's high as you wish it. It's quick as an elf. You'll never outgrow it. It stretches itself. So climb any mountain, climb up to the sky. My love will find you, my love can fly. Make a big splash, go out on a limb. My love will find you, my love can swim. It never gets lost, never fades, never ends. If you're working or playing or sitting with friends, you can dance till you're dizzy, paint till you're blue. There's no place, not one, that my love can't find you. And if someday you're lonely or someday you're sad or you strike out at baseball or think you've been bad, just lift up your face, feel the wind in your hair. That's me, my sweet baby. My love is right there. In the green of the grass, in the smell of the sea, in the clouds floating by at the top of the tree, 
in the sound crickets make. At the end of the day, you are loved, you are loved, you are loved, they all say. It has never mattered where we are. God's love can find us. It didn't matter at the time of the revelation. God's love found John in a prison cell on an island in the Aegean Sea. God's love found seven churches in need of pastoral care. God's love found Ephesus, a church that had forgotten its first love. God's love found Smyrna, a rich church preparing to suffer hardship. God's love found Pergamum, a church that had become a stumbling blocks to others. God's love found Thyatira, a church that had compromised faithful morality. God's love found Sardis, a church that was dead and didn't even realize it. God's love has found Philadelphia, a victorious church that had endured through constant threat. And next week, we're going to see that God's love will find Laodicea, a lukewarm church that doesn't realize their own misery. God's love found them wherever they were, and God's love finds us wherever we are. God's love will find you wherever you are. None of us really knows what is next for us. We don't know when the ground will shake, but you can count on God finding you. If you feel lonely at school, God's love will find you there. If you feel unsatisfied at work, God's love will find you there. If you feel unnoticed at home, God's love will find you there. If you feel scared in your community, God's love will find you there. If you feel shame in your own body, God's love will find you there. If you feel worry for your church, God's love will find you there. God's love will find you wherever you are. God's love will make you a pillar in the temple of God. The book concludes. My love is so high and so wide and so deep. It's always right there, even when you're asleep. If you're still my small babe or you're all the way grown, my promise to you is you are never alone. You're my angel, my darling, my star, and my love will find you wherever you are. God's love is promised to find you wherever you are. Amen. Amen.